Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I want to know something. Who watches The Watchmen? Ooh. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, this is a good question, right? Like, who polices the police? Yeah. <laughs> the shepherds. The shepherds, right. <laughs> the uh, the, uh, the hard-headed, soft-hearted people. They're the ones <laughs> who go after the watchmen. <laughs> right. Yes. Good point. That's a good answer. Yeah. So, yes, today we're going to be talking about the graphic novel Watchmen. And that question is obliquely referenced a few times in the book of Who Watches the Watchmen. I think it's like graffitied on a few walls during some scenes, but it's kind of become a little bit of a meme of the book as well. And I looked it up today, actually. It tra- I guess it probably traces back to the kind of same question, Who Guards the Guards, uh, which was asked apparently by a poet philosopher in like second or third century Rome by a guy named Juvenal. J-U-V- Juvenal. <laughs> well, it's J-U-V-E-N-A-L. Okay. <laughs> so his name is Juvenal, and it's a satirical take on, um, I guess, basically the entire notion of we're here to protect you. Okay, well, who's going to protect us from you when there's no one left for you to protect us from? <laughs> right, because, I mean, it's that whole, you know, you... you... <laughs> You need something to do. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When uh, when you, the protector, become the bigger danger, who's going to protect us from that? <laughs> Which I mean, we see all throughout history, right? This is my biggest criticism of the state: is right, like the state is a self perpetuating thing. And I mean, this graphic novel is a great critique of the state. Yes. Yeah. But also, yeah, I mean... A lot of it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it made me think a little bit, too, about how maybe there's like a reductio ad absurdum here where it's kind of like the only real answer to that, who watches the watchmen or who guards the guards, would be a state that is systematically working towards functional anarchy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the state that you have to reduce it. Otherwise, you're just growing it faster yeah, the, and faster. The, the state who's like, if to use a Star Trek term, like the prime directive is the incremental but tangible dismantling of its own power. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I guess at that point, you wouldn't need to ask a question like who guards the guards? Because there would be kind of like, what would you even call it? Infinite trust? Right. <laughs> Something like that. Like, doesn't sound much like anarchy, though. <laughs> well, no. Anarchy, I think... Okay, well, obviously, in modern parlance, anarchy is, you know, video images of people looting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, basically, Riots. what happens when there's no cops? Mm, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Whereas, I guess, technically, or, or 
in like political philosophy, anarchy would just be the state of no governing body. Right. Right. You know, like just there is no government. True. But life continues, you know. It's interesting, actually, because I have <laughs> we're recording this in what we hope is maybe something like the middle or at least early middle of the coronavirus self-isolation. Yeah, we're, we're hoping that it's not a this, long-term thing. This might not age well. <laughs> <laughs> and if uh, the apocalypse slash anarchy arises, <laughs> uh, that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> so because of all of this kind of self-isolation going on, I have been recently on Netflix catching up to where I was on the TV show The Walking Dead which is a little bit macabre, maybe, given the circumstances. <laughs> However, there is a world without a government. Right. And yet, there seems to be something almost kind of emergent in the human psyche about order. Well, I, that think, needs... hi- I think hierarchy is emergent. And, yeah. And hierarchy can often breed order because people mm-hmm. want to know their place in a hierarchy. Exactly. And then the the real question of any hierarchy is how to... How do you have a peaceful transition of power when one, <laughs> when when there's a shifting yeah, of the hierarchy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and The Walking Dead does a great job of that. Totally, and there's so much tension. There's a lot about The Walking Dead that I think is really stupid. There's a lot of stupid tropes in it, probably superlatively. How do these people who've been out here for like seven years now in this world, how do they still get snuck up on by zombies? <laughs> Yeah, you'd think they'd how have almost that, a sixth sense that, at this point. How are we still getting jump scares of zombies on these people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it is interesting to see, though, like our good guys. Uh, I guess this is spoilers for season nine of The Walking Dead. Our good guys, the, you know, the hilltop and the kingdom and the Alexandria and Oceanside communities uh, have all just kind of signed a charter of rights and freedoms for all the members of their communities. And right how they are, like, what people are free to do. Right, and what they're not free to do, And opposed to the current villains who are the whisperers who just want death because that's the natural state of things now. Like, their their statement is, we are the end of the world. Right, right. Anyway, (laughs) who guards the guards, who watches the Watchmen? Uh, Again, oblique (laughs) to Watchmen, but, you know, whatever. So, yes, Watchmen. Graphic novel, I believe published in 1986 or 85. Uh, I guess I could look, but that seems to be uh, promising more thorough research than we for our listeners than do, we could yeah. ever promise. <laughs> I mean, this is a book probably in the other room, so right. <laughs> that's yeah. far away. Anyway, mid 80s, 85, 86. And I will admit, I didn't read it until the Zack Snyder movie came out in, I believe, 2009. So in 2009, the book graphic novel Watchmen kind of resurfaced in the public consciousness because there was a major Hollywood movie being made about it. And from my recollection, the movie itself was kind of polarizing for a lot of fans, even though I really like the movie. And I think having because we both read the book and i just had some extra free time so i watched the movie again in what would you even call it like passive preparation for this and the movie is a pretty faithful a faithful adaptation of the book i actually think it's great stylistically it's kind of of that era of the slow-mo cool shots very comic book-esque feel to it kind of almost um that like 300 yeah <laughs> style yeah. i was very in when that came out mm-hmm. was was making the, yeah there's a major 
major difference between the book and the movie in terms of what the great catastrophe event is. Uh, so in the, I mean, whatever, we always spoil these anyway. <laughs> For some reason, I have a hang up of spoiling it early in the podcast, although that doesn't make any sense. No, because we're, we're going, going to, to anyway. anyway, yeah. <laughs> and I always put the spoilers out on the episode notes anyway. <laughs> so whatever. In the graphic novel, Ozymandias or Adrian Veidt, one of the heroes, the, the masked vigilante heroes, he, he somehow figures out interdimensional teleportation. And he like teleports this massive octopus squid thing into the middle of New York City, yeah. killing millions of people. And in the movie, he actually the the plot goes that he has managed to recreate Doctor Manhattan's essence, basically to destroy New York City. Yeah. Now, in both cases, it's so that the world governments will come together on the brink of because all the world governments are on the brink of nuclear annihilation. They'll all come together to fight this new evil in the graphic novel. It's an interdimensional squid uh, species. <laughs> and in the movie, it's Dr. Manhattan himself. Right. And then, I guess, before we do a plot rundown, we should also mention that, I guess, one of the reasons we wanted to do Watchmen is that it has re-entered <laughs> the public consciousness with the 2019 HBO show, Watchmen. Which really has not a lot to do with the comic book and is more about no, it's uh, kind of its own story. Regular people, and so we we just want to bring it up to kind of let you know that we're not actually going to be talking about the TV show Watchmen. I watched the whole season, and I think it's really good. I enjoyed it. It's set in the same universe, but basically the events of Watchmen, the graphic novel, are in eighty five, eighty six. I think New York City. And then a little Antarctica as well. Yeah, yeah. But the TV show is set in 2019, Tulsa, Oklahoma, but it's in the same universe. So it's basically like whatever that is, the 34 years after the events, but in the same universe. And there are only, my recollection is there's only three characters in the TV show that are in the original. Adrian Veidt, Dr. Manhattan, and Lori, or what was her name? Jupiter? No. Sally Jupiter was her last name that she changed. No, Sally Jupiter was her mom. Lori was the one, the younger one. Who watched her <laughs> mom get raped or whatever. Yes, and, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And no, so it's kind of funny, actually. In the TV show, she is, you know, in her mid to late 50s now, and she's an FBI agent. And, you know, Manhattan is, well, I won't spoil that because it's a pretty fun reveal, actually. And then Adrian Veidt oh, is played by Jeremy Irons in the TV show. And he's <laughs> hilariously, he's been banished to one of the moons of Jupiter, I think, because <laughs> the technology is sufficient. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so all the alternate history. So anyway, we only bring up the TV show to say that that's not the focus. We're talking about specifically the graphic novel and I guess a bit the movie just because it's so overlapping. But anyway, so Watchmen, I feel like a lot of you will be familiar with this story because of how popular it's been in the last 20 years, but... For those of you who are, have no idea what we're talking about, you should. We just did Atlas Shrugged, uh, and our recommendation was to not read that book. Uh, I could not encourage you more to read this one because it's actually not a book in the classic sense; a graphic novel. So this is one of the first ever comic books to be really like a serious one. Yeah, well, I think I'm trying to remember the name of the artist slash author. Okay, so the the book itself is at least like the credit is Alan Moore wrote yeah, the story. Yeah, so Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons is the illustrator. So Alan Moore has a reputation, particularly among comic book aficionados, as being the man who introduced 
kind of a darker theme. He's Alan Moore's the one who wrote the the Batman comic books that um, that Christopher Nolan's Batman's based oh, off. Okay, of. yeah, yeah. So Watchmen's one of actually his first, and he he just kind of has a, a, a almost a deity like status among comic book artists and comic book aficionados because of how he transformed the medium mm, in a way right. that uh, almost no one has ever done. And and Watchmen was kind of his masterpiece. Like he considers it his best work, like, right? Better than anything else that he's done, and. What I, I mean, you could just, this, I don't want to say spiritual, but there is an ethos in this book of mm. just, that that is almost unlike anything else I'd ever read up until the point that I read this mm. the first yes. time. Just despair, but also like a, a nobility in suffering, but like <laughs> the utter suffering. Like there's no hope or happiness or yeah. joy. There's just pain and suffering and and. But these heroes are still trying to make the little right. bit of a difference that they can. It's a brutal, brutal book. And there's also the, uh, you know, there's this uh, existential despair about middle age <laughs> and like becoming irrelevant yep. mm-hmm. and, you know, past trying to relive past glories. Yep. And um, yeah, anyway, Alan Moore really humanizes comic books and comic book heroes Definitely. in this in this comic particularly, or I don't want to call it comic, this graphic novel, he uh, yeah, he does it in a way that you don't, like maybe, you know, Death of a Salesman mm-hmm. or something like that. Like where he's really critiquing human aging a lot too. Oh here. my gosh, there's so many awesome and dark themes in this. And I like that you use that word humanizing because of how good the illustrations are too of the characters in the comic book where you can really get a sense of their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, this, uh, that's the other thing that is often said. The only reason I'm saying this is because one of my uh, closest friends over the years was a fellow named Evan Litke, and he was, a, he was an illustrator. And so I learned my appreciation for, and I brought this up a couple times in the podcast, about different mediums and how different mediums can do different things. Mm-hmm. And this is perhaps, if the greatest biography of, of all time is Dr. Johnson then this may potentially the greatest <laughs> graphic novel. Oh, I think so. Almost undoubtedly. Yeah. On on the issue that we read, like I we bought and read for this podcast because I didn't we didn't own it before. Uh, on the cover, it says that Watchmen is in Time Magazine's top 100 novels in the English language. Yes, of all time. Yeah, exactly. Of all time, which is pretty incredible <laughs> considering the, all it's the a graphic novels. novel, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean. We are not the first nor the most articulate to make the point that this probably brought a sort of, I guess, a gravitas to the medium of comics and and even calling it a graphic novel because it is about 500 pages, which is much longer than a comic book, which is a serial. I guess like most comics are kind of like TV shows. Yeah. In that sense, right? Episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every issue is an episode whereas this is a self-contained story all in one book and it's really awesome so you know all of that to say this is one we highly recommend i mean you could read this in a day easily and it's very gripping it's you get absorbed right into it it's so it's very dark oh <laughs> this, re- like this, this is not should not be read by people no. who like are squeamish or or to children no never to children <laughs> no this is a this might be our darkest story or source material yet. Yeah. Of all of I the think ones. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. 
but it's made such an impact that it's kind of funny. This is a little maybe inside baseball for you and me, David, but maybe listeners will appreciate that. There's some, whenever we're discussing future episodes that we could do, we kind of throw some out and then like, we're like, well, maybe, you know, there's all these kind of like half, half-assed agreements or like, oh, okay, talk me into that one. Oh, okay, I see. But it's just, there's a few where as soon as we say, we're like, yep. Yeah, and, and Watchmen, Watchmen was, was definitely one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that. So anyway, okay, this plot is a little bit complicated. So I'm going to try and make sure. It's interesting because there's kind of a, there's a super important background that not a lot of time of the book is spent on, but is really crucial to understanding the current events. And so it kind of, it's a story that kind of spans about five decades, actually. Because in the, I guess, the 30s, and into the 40s, we have, I believe they were called the Minutemen. It was like the first ever vigilante heroes in American history. And if memory serves correct, the first one was Hooded Justice. But then there were these few other ones like uh, Captain Metropolis and uh, the Moth Guy. I can't remember his name. Mothman, maybe. Uh, Silhouette. The Comedian, who's kind of like the overlapping character that connects the two. Uh, Sally Jupiter or Silk Spectre, which might have been her daughter. I can't remember. <laughs> I think Silk Spectre was actually her daughter. Yeah. And there's one other one, Dollar Bill, maybe. Anyway, so there was this group of people who kind of all found each other in the 30s and 40s who were out fighting crime on the streets. And Oh, and, and the first Night Owl, who's the yes. kind of biographer of this group. So anyway, the story kind of starts with us knowing about these people. It's like told analogously or parallelly at the same time as we see the comedian being killed. So the beginning of the novel, the comedian in present day 1985 is killed by someone. And this is surprising because the comedian is very strong. What happens is modern day Rorschach, one of the modern day super watchmen or masked heroes is on the trail because he thinks there's someone killing masked heroes and this upsets him because he's a masked hero, even though they've been outlawed in 1977, because in the 60s, the second wave of superheroes, which included Rorschach, uh, 60s and 70s, Rorschach, Night Owl 2, or Dan Dryberg, who's also one of the main characters of the book, um, Silk Spectre, who is Sally Jupiter's daughter, and Dr. Manhattan, who's the actual only <laughs> one who has real Do powers. Is actually, well, godlike <laughs> powers. Yeah, godlike yeah. powers. And then Adrian Veidt, whose uh, name is Ozymandias. And the comedian is back, <laughs> basically. Yes. So he's the only one that was like in the first one and the second one. And so the background basically is that these masked characters saw all the crime in the United States in the different eras and decided to do something about it in a vigilante sense. And they were heralded for a while, but then they kind of crumbled from within. And then there was the Keen Act, I think, that was passed. So they're outlawed in 1977. So now they're kind of like seven years later in retirement. However, the, someone has killed the comedian. Basically, Rorschach is trying to find out who's doing this. He goes and visits Dan or Night Owl 2 to elicit his help. Dan doesn't want to help because he thinks Rorschach is crazy and Rorschach is pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, some of his rants are just nuts. <laughs> Holy cow. He's just one of the most memorable characters ever, I think. And we'll get into him. And so he's visiting all these people. He visits, Dan visits Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, to warn him. Um, they visit Dr. Manhattan. Who doesn't care Who doesn't all. care. But Dr. Manhattan and Lori, the daughter, the younger one, they're dating now. And then 
<laughs> Dr. Manhattan has to, he goes on this television show because they want to talk to him. And it's implied that all the people he's been close with, he's given cancer to because he's a radioactive Superman, basically, who uh, was he was destroyed in a, I don't even know what it was called. It's like a physics nuclear testing little cube. Molecules were reconstructed, and he's basically telekinetic and omniscient. Yeah. <laughs> and can so, see all time at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's in all time. So he's actually a real powerful. The line is, I didn't say the Superman was real, and he's American. I said God is real. And, and he's, he's American. American. <laughs> and so all of this is backdrop, or the backdrop to all of this is what's going on geopolitically, which is basically uh, the Soviet Union and the United States approaching midnight, which is going to be total nuclear holocaust. So for anyone who listening and lived through the 80s, I guess, I mean, we were both born in the 80s, we don't remember it. The story is basically very of the time, I guess. Like it would have been, even nineteen. People would have been thinking about this a lot. Yeah. And uh, especially in 1985, they didn't realize it was even... The Soviet Union was collapsing at this point, so it was still incredibly, you know, front and center in everyone's <laughs> minds that we could all just die of nuclear war, mm-hmm. which we still could, by the way. Yes, although uh, there's other yeah. things currently <laughs> taking people's minds off of that. Yep. So then when Dr. Manhattan, or his name is John Osterman, but he goes by Dr. Manhattan now, finds this out. He's all blue, by the way. Literally, he's a blue character. Um, when he finds out that he's potentially been responsible for the cancer of all the people he's cared about in the last 20 years of his life, he goes and just hangs out on Mars right? <laughs> and yeah. has all these meditations going on on Mars. Whereas now Rorschach has been captured by the police. He was set up by someone. He's been captured by the police. While this is happening, Dan and Lori have reconnected. They've kind of started up uh, a little bit of flirtation. They've decided that they're going to get back into costume and go save Rorschach. They bust him out of jail. Dr. Manhattan shows back up, teleports Lori back to Mars to talk him about, tell her why he's not really going to save Earth from (laughs) the nukes and that kind of stuff. Uh, Meanwhile, all of this is happening. Ozymandias has been attacked, but the person who went to attack him swallowed a cyanide pill, but it actually turns out, dun, 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 Ozymandias is behind everything. And the great maybe the best ever finished to a story that i i don't know what to think about is ozymandias has planned to destroy i think it's like he kills like 14 million people is supposed to be the number in new york city in the movie he's killed people from all over the world because there's all these different like areas he's blown up through dr manhattan's power but in the graphic novel and in the tv show he makes a (laughs) fucking huge octopus just show up in New York City and the and the crash of that and the radiation kills millions and millions and millions of people, thus making the world governments stop aiming the nukes at each other to figure out. So he basically makes world peace by killing, you know, 14 million plus people. And the end of the story is Rorschach and Dan and Dr. Manhattan and Lori finding out all, about all of this and them agreeing that they can't tell anyone because they actually, Ozzy, they, they kind of implicitly decide Ozymandias made the right decision, even though he killed millions of people. Everyone agrees to this except Rorschach, who says never compromise. So he gets killed by Dr. Manhattan and then the world continues. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's I mean it's crazy. That, and that's the the kind of Alan Moore esque questions. Like he wa- he doesn't want simple answers no. and simple questions. He wants really difficult human utilitarian questions like yeah. sacrifice. Like yeah. how yeah, 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 what yeah. do we sacrifice for the good of the many? Is the is the sacrifice of the few for the good of the many worth it? Should you stand by your principles when your principles are getting in the way of peace? Like yeah. And I, I mean, Rorschach's probably my favorite character. I actually, I think I agree with him more because everyone ends up dying, right? Like, that's just the nature of things. How do you how do you know your sacrifice was worth it, right? Mm. Um, you can't really say. You're making a calculation. But I guess in the case of Dr. Manhattan, he's not making a calculation. <laughs> in the, Which adds a whole other wrinkle yeah. to the story. <laughs> that's, like, and that's the beauty of this is it's just yeah. very complex moral quandaries that you don't really get satisfying answers mm-hmm. to. I mean, we'll flesh all of that part out because that's definitely the most important part of the book is the ending. Maybe the only other major thing to point out is that the comedian who's basically a kind of rape well, he's a rapist yeah and a total dirtbag it turns out that he is actually Lori's father <laughs> right but not on purpose <laughs> not, kind of thing yeah and it's actually that that makes Dr. Manhattan want to help again in a crazy twist of things <laughs> right one of the things this story does so well is make you check your assumptions on things yes because the whole like this is a great minor well, not minor but not the biggest example of the book the whole time you're thinking I'm, <laughs> the comedian sucks obviously he does so much he but maybe more than anyone he does horrible things and and kind of he's the reason for the breakup of the Minutemen. Yeah. And he's almost the reason for the Keenan Act, too. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's so brutal. Yes. He's a total sadist, right? And yet, if it wasn't for him, Laurie wouldn't be in the story. And if Laurie wasn't in the story, there wouldn't be anyone to kind of make Dr. Manhattan. To humanize To humanize Dr. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Manhattan. He's, like, Laurie's his last connection to his humanity because yeah. he's gone so far to the deity side. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of interesting. It's like, well, if there was no comedian, there'd be no Laurie. So how do we feel about comedian now? <laughs> yeah. Well, and these are the kind of like these are the kind of questions that, like I said, this book raises. Like, rape is wrong. We all agree on that. But what if the outcome of rape is good? Then what do you say about? Well, I think you know, actually, in the narrative, there is the rape scene or the sexual assault scene anyway with comedian and Sally. But then I think we're led to believe that later they actually hook up. Yeah. So like the which, conception which is at a different Lori time. Which also Laurie kind of was mad at her mom. Well, of course. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, well, this means Laurie's mom had been very egregiously sexually assaulted by the comedian at one point and then later went back to him consensually. Like, it's pretty fucked up. Well, I mean, <laughs> these things happen though. Like, that's what I like about this is it's incredibly gritty in its analysis of human experience. Yeah, and there's no uh, punches pulled. No. Hey? It's just like, the, these are the shitty things that happen to people and, and, the, and the ways that they respond to them. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned him first because I was going to talk about him first. I think, to me, Rorschach is the most interesting person in the book. Yeah. So I think what I like about him, well, maybe I feel a little bit of a okay. So let's let's start off with just his kind of view of society. Like he just sees society as a dump, as like 
a wretched place that like why would any and there's that one scene where he says you know eventually the gutters will fill with blood and you'll all be drowning in your own filth and you'll look up to me and say save me and i'll look down and say no right and that 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 quote is the quote that has stuck with me that's the single scene from Watchmen that has stuck with me all from the years i first read it when i was about 19 i guess till now and still he isn't trying to save people anymore but he still feels a like his whole identity is wrapped up in this set of principles that there's good and evil and that he needs to be f- fighting the evil but that society itself has become so evil that that he can't even fight evil anymore because it's repressed his principles and his ideology to such a point that he's be- he's become bitter and yet he it's his ideals that have made him bitter, but he still holds on to his ideals. <laughs> and and I that character is so compelling to me. The the idea like that is such a human way of living. And I and we meet people like this and we like you know that there are people living like this who who have allowed their principles to so embitter them. And yet he still has friends, he still cares about people, he still mm-hmm. follows his principles. And like that's what I love. This is not a um, a 2D portrait of a personality. It is a very rich and full contemplation on what it's like to be a person who is holding on to their principles in the face of everything else. Mm-hmm. But that that but that is embittered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he is very bitter. <laughs> it's just. It feels like such a euphemism yeah. for what he actually is. He actually also reminds me, I mean, it's not a surprise. It's very on the nose even, but he reminds me of these kind of like apocalyptic prophesiers, you know, or even... Doomsday. Do- yeah, he's yeah. a perfect doomsday conspiracy theorist oh, type of right. guy, right? And, and he kind of wants everything yeah. to go well, to and shit. Well, it's, it's not even like there are some... Yeah, this is a Watchmen thing in the story. There are some great scenes where in the panels there'll be other characters who are not the subject of the panel, but if you pay enough attention, you see that there's other stuff going on. So one of the great things of the story is that Rorschach, his real life identity is not known. Most of them aren't only Adrian's is because he did it himself, but uh, Rorschach, I think his name is Walter Kovacs or Kovacs or something like that. Anyway, there's a lot of scenes before he's caught by the police where he's out of mask and he's always walking around with a sign that's saying is the end is nigh <laughs> because he's like kind of trying to keep tabs on Dan and Lori. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you see him, he's got this red hair and he's always walking out the end is nigh. And I mean, as a, it, this is just such a cool art thing as the reader of the book, we are like, as the audience, we're almost, if you've never read Watchmen, you're basically totally convinced that this is Rorschach. But none of the other characters in the novel have any idea, right? No, they just think no. he's some other crazy guy who walks around, <laughs> which they're not incorrect. No. <laughs> oh, and then he gets his name. So he has a mask that is basically a Rorschach mask, which just is constantly shifting patterns. Because yeah, I don't know where the actual term came from, probably from the psychologist who developed it. But the Rorschach test is when you show a patient some kind of weird blotted pattern pattern, and then ask them to see what they see. And the whole idea is that um, because it's so indistinct, presumably you get some 
insight into a person's psyche, especially someone's psyche who is maybe damaged or psychotic based on what they say they see, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because there's no actual thing to see. It's so up to interpretation. People see what they want to see, presumably, right? right? Right, And then that's kind of a metaphor for Rorschach, I guess, is that his mask is always changing. So with him, I guess you see what you want to see. Now, interestingly, because you didn't watch the show, right? No, I no. haven't watched the show, so, and I didn't watch the movie for this. The either, direction so. that uh, like artists have taken with Rorschach is that in the TV show there is a a white supremacist cult inspired by Rorschach. They all wear the masks, and they're, I think they're called the Seventh Calvary or something like that. And they're basically he's their patron saint. Right? <laughs> is this yeah, uh, yeah. this group in Oklahoma? But there is something to that in that Rorschach clearly hates the scum, right? Yeah, he doesn't see the poor as like someone to have empathy for. No. He sees them as like failures. Right. And now this is an interesting thing I learned from Jordan Peterson talking about this is that a lot of the language used by people who are beyond the pale in a kind of more right-wing sense is the language of disgust. Right. So there was yes. a lot of talk of cockroaches and dirtiness and disease in the language of the Nazis, for example. Right, <laughs> right. right. And so... The final solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like getting what, rid yeah. of the cockroaches, basically. And so there's just an interesting... Rorschach is definitely right of center, <laughs> yes. politically, yes. He, in, in his doomsday-ness type of thing. Like he reminds me almost of a... Someone who calls into a, like a show in the Midwest. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he probably about. listens to talk radio. Yeah, yeah. And... he'd be a Rush Limbaugh guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's kind of set up, I think, to be disliked by us, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think we're supposed to dislike him, which is, I think, another great way of Alan Moore checking our assumptions on people. Because by the end, he is ostensibly at least like in the normative way we think about ethics he is kind of the hero yes <laughs> right? right yeah because he is the uncompromising one he's the one that wants to bring to light and tell everyone what ozymandias did and it doesn't matter if he saved the whole planet 14 million people did die and so i think his line is you live a life free from compromise uh and so even in the face of armageddon he's willing to be uncompromising he's one of the toughest. I think he's the toughest character to really analyze. Well, that's what I like is he's real. Yeah. Right? Is he's not just a a character to be analyzed. Like mm. there's enough reality to him. He, he's that's meaty. There's a wholeness there. Uh, it's not it's not a wholesomeness, <laughs> no. but a wholeness. Like when you're digging into a person's psychology, the more you get to know them, sometimes the more you find that there's these inconsistencies, mm. and yet. There's this core set of values that kind of drive a person. Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because we, I forgot to give a little context for him. So one of the best things about the story is when we get the backgrounds of a lot of these characters. And with Rorschach, his background is as a boy, his mom is a prostitute and he's totally abused by her and then all the Johns that come in. So he's pretty fucked up from that. And that's the other thing. Yeah. All of these characters are somehow fucked up. It's like, like, like not even just a little bit. No, there's, right? there's no, you know, wholesome upbringings in any of these character arcs. Like, mm -hmm. it's all just bad. Well, and I mean, probably the one who had the best 
childhood was Dr. Manhattan and he's destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, this machine, yeah. right? So he's physically I mean, I guess Dan didn't have a I don't think we get a lot of Dan's history. I can't remember. No, I'm well it's certainly We're, not. Just only through exposition, focus, not yeah. through flashback. Yeah, exactly. But he's the narrator, so you don't usually have the narrators. Yeah. Do uh, you mean Rorschach? Well, Rorschach is kind of the narrator with his journal. True. Right? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of different perspectives, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. That's the other cool thing. There isn't yeah. exactly a main character. No. No. Like, I would say Rorschach, Dan, and Dr. Manhattan, and Laurie. Those four are all main characters at different parts of the book. And we get first-person perspectives from all four of those characters. Yeah. Well, the, through the journals, like you said. Mm-hmm. Rorschach is really messed up as a kid, and then there's the scene where he's like, he bites the ear off a kid like four years older than him who's being a bully to him. So he's he, from an early age, he's demonstrated he doesn't give a fuck and he'll do anything to survive. Yeah. Well, and then he has some a sense of justice again. Yeah. Like that that mm-hmm. becomes very clear. That's really the driving force is justice. For the him. the poetic nature of his mask, which is black and white, is that ha- that's how he actually sees the world. Yes. Like there yeah. is a right and a wrong. There's a good and a bad. Black and white. He has no time for any sort of. <laughs> it made me. Th- he would hate a moral philosophy class. <laughs> oh yeah, he'd <laughs> be just like, be like, "This is a waste of time. We yeah. already know what's right and wrong." Which is it's, well, which is why he hates the end of this because it's a, one of the hardest moral philosophy questions. Yeah, <laughs> that it's that, that, that old train to, question, yeah. or whatever, on a broader scale. Yeah, and so when he's captured and in jail he's talking to the psychologist in jail and he asks him about when he became rorschach and this story is haunting and one of the one of my favorite parts of the novels is actually this retelling of he traces down a missing little girl to this guy's house and he sees this this guy's two dogs in the yard are fighting over the bone which we come to learn is the bone of one of the girl like the little girl who he's killed like this guy has killed this little girl so Rorschach kills these two dogs waits for the guy to come home ties him up and then kills him like just butchers him and then with a butcher's knife and like in the movie it's such a great scene too where he just like he goes to town on this guy and he just doesn't stop butchering him, right yeah yeah and then his line to the psychologist is something like the day where I saw what could be done to children in this world. I was no longer Walter Kovacs and I became Rorschach. So this is like the water that he's swimming in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, these... he's swimming in the the swamp of human evil. Mm-hmm. And like he's decided he wants to confront that. But it's like that whole Nietzschean, you know, be careful if you stare <laughs> into the abyss because the abyss might stare back into you. Yeah, and it's, it. it hasn't made him evil, I wouldn't say. But it's certainly taken away any sense of innocence or naivety from his entire existence. Well, I think that line is even mentioned in the book, <laughs> the monster's yes. line. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah. Which is cool. Like, obviously, he knows about Nietzsche, the <laughs> yeah. Alan Moore. So then, okay, yeah, he he doesn't compromise. So what do you may? Uh, we should talk about the prison scene a little bit, too where there's the prison is full of people who he's helped put away <laughs> yeah, throughout the years yeah. because before that he didn't kill people right he used to not kill people now he does kind of thing and there's a great scene where he throws this net of burning hot oil in this guy's face who's trying to intimidate him and he says I'm not locked up in here with you you're locked up in here with me yeah and then he basically manages to kill these two huge dudes who are the bodyguards of this short, small guy who is an enemy of him, who he's put away for years, and he just destroyed... I don't know. 
the prison scene was so crazy and interesting to me. So what did you think of all of that in the context of him? Well, well, I think maybe one of the things we like about him as a character and maybe that we admire and no, no, when I say we, maybe me is, is the strength, right? It's like the reason he's kind of a hero is because he's what we wish we could do to all of our enemies, <laughs> right? Sure. Like yeah. we wish that we like maybe it's, it's that it's the darker side of our wishes. Like some of us wish we could be heroes like Superman and, you know, fly around and save people, <laughs> but really just at the have heart that chiseled of it, jaw. Yeah, <laughs> just be like, but really at the, he is, is exemplifies the darker side where it's like, if you fuck with me, I'll fuck, I will destroy you. Yeah. Right? And, and not just if you fuck with me, if you fuck with, but if you fuck with my moral code, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> which if extends you, to other people, right? If you violate my the said you know principles of justice and fairness, then I'm coming for you, and you're done. And I think there is a part of all of us deep down that wants that, right? Yeah. Wants that power to be like because there's nothing like the feeling of helplessness. And at, when it comes to Rorschach, I think what, what artistically is so appealing is that he's never helpless, mm-hmm. even when he's in prison, right? It's like like you said, I'm not stuck in here with you. You're yeah. stuck in here with me. Like, to be able to say that <laughs> with any sort of conviction, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to have a, a sense of personal power and personal um, strength and be able to act on it, right? Because right. it's one thing to you know puff out your chest and say... That's something like that. And it's another thing even like to get punched and stand up again and just take punches. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of mo- nobility. But the actual capacity for violence, let's yeah. say, that he that he demonstrates is something – and I don't, I'm not saying – I'm not making a, like a moral, a normative claim on whether it's good, right or wrong <laughs> what he does. What I'm saying is that that sense of power is something I think deeply ingrained in the human – Maybe subconscious. Mm, yeah, you. Uh, that whole thing that you were saying there made me kind of have an epiphany about Rorschach is that he's definitely not crippled. He loses no time second guessing himself. No, he he you know he has a personal level of awareness and strength of conviction that that I think is is enviable mm-hmm. for a lot of people, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's Maybe, very tempting. Yeah, to be that sure of yourself. But how do you like? I mean, how do you be that sure of yourself? <laughs> I mean, and I think we're brought to believe by the novel that the way he got there is through this through his reaction to the suffering that he experienced because some people can become you know quivering wrecks yeah um before things like that this, and, um, I, I wouldn't blame anyone for that like th- that kind of stuff breaks people mm-hmm. but it's like that idea that well if you don't break someone through something like that they become a, a very different kind of strong yeah but it's it's not a um it's not a strength like an oak tree. It's more like a, a forged, you know, mace. <laughs> well, he, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that scene where he becomes Rorschach, I think, is the last time he ever second guesses his own decisions. Right. Right? And and then he kind of like second guesses, well, man, why did I leave all these people alive before then, if this is the way the world actually is? Because he has decided, and decided might not be the right word, he has, be, he has become convinced that the world is so ugly and is so dark that there is no time for him to be any other way. He's uncompromising in his own words. Now, okay, (laughs) I want to be on Team Rorschach. Like, I do feel the pull to saying he's actually the hero of this story. Now, I think the reason I can't totally 
at least without any blemish on his, if you'll pardon the term, on his face. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> is I think that he's right at the moment where he is finding himself in a lot of the situations because he seeks out the underworld. And in the narrative of the story, it makes sense. But he doesn't allow for any new data to come around that might be... Like, he's hermetically sealed off any conduit of something that isn't the darkest depths of the human. Yeah, he's not looking for um, beauty. He's no. not looking for grace. He's not looking for, like, human kindness. He He just... He sees the yeah. scum and he wants to protect, I think, the ignorant from the mm-hmm. scum. So I'm I'm totally detaching this point from Watchmen itself because in the part of the suspension of disbelief for Watchmen is that this is actually the way the world is. Yeah. Which <laughs> yeah. is fine, right? Now I'm I'm thinking I'm making a more of like a meta point about people who might be more of that psychology, is that it can be very self satisfying. <laughs> it's there's something really um, mentally f- uh, nice to not have to be concerned about if you are actually right about something or not. I mean, we the history is replete with people who are convinced utterly of their own <laughs> vindication and rightness. I, the point is that it doesn't allow for new info if you're sealed off, which could improve something. So there's two things, I guess. One of the things that I see as potential issue with sealing yourself off from the world it's black and white in that way one of them is that there is a whole now swath of experiences you have not allowed yourself to have which i think is one form of tragedy like that's like personal tragedy to me and not even experiences so much as um, vistas of mental exploration Mm mm-hmm because, well, yeah, once you've... But, I mean, I don't think Rorschach is, like, an example of how we should live. He might be an example of how you should live in Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> if Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not in, in that universe, world. if that's how things are. But I, I think... I agree. I think his, he is tragic. Mm-hmm. But the tragedy... What I love about what Alan Moore has done here <laughs> is the tragedy makes sense. Yeah. Like, based yes. on true. the experiences, that is a way to live. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think what you're saying is that's not the best way to live, and let's dissect why it's not the best. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if I was to say why I don't think it's the best way to live, it's because that bitterness and that view of the world, not only is it going to... As you like, you're going to have confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. So you're like, with, as we all do with with so many different things. I mean, even with this uh, coronavirus that we're going through right now, there's a lot of confirmation bias going on from both sides. <laughs> of course, right? There's the people who are like, "Oh, it's not that big of a deal. The economic damage is going to be way worse." I mean, yeah. it is a fascinating sociological <laughs> study in how the human mind works. Because, yeah. and then the other side is like, "How could you not care about the old people? Are you a heartless, evil, <laughs> you know, bastard? Like, what's wrong with you?" Yeah. And these two sides are yelling at each other, and it's really just two perspectives. Yeah. Right. Uh, two perspectives that are taking in data and they are coloring it with their own preconceived notions of Mm -hmm. what's going on. And so with Rorschach, like you said, in the Watchmen universe, well, maybe he's right. But in our... Because it's a more survival universe. Yeah, but in our universe... But the the question I have for Rorschach is, (laughs) okay, so if that's true, if everyone's like that, why do you care about the the children? Right? And as far as I can tell, the only reason he cares is because he feels like children haven't been corrupted yet. Mm -hmm. And so there's a purity to them that doesn't exist with others. And that purity can continue into adulthood for some. 
Yes. So he actually thinks Dan and Lori and John and before the turn, Adrian are actually good people. Right. <laughs> like he, true, he true. does think, or at least not so bad that they need to be snuffed out too. Right. Right. <laughs> and he, he even has a little bit of fondness for Dan. He does seem to have so, a fondness for Dan. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No. So I guess all I'm saying is I think that in our universe or our context, the, the problem with living that way actually doesn't have a lot to do with the external world, although your impact on the external world would be quite negative, generally speaking. And as you and I have talked about before, taking a, a vigilante justice is not, well, this is an interesting thing. The reason they wear masks is so that no one can know who they are when they're doing these things. Yeah, right? exactly. But the problem with revenge, and the, I mean, <laughs> there's so much talked about with revenge. The problem with it is, you you obsess with it and you and you focus on it and you know you get your your justice but it never fulfills the whole of what you've created in yourself because what is the purpose of your justice what are you <laughs> what are you perpetrating in the world right I, well i would say interestingly i that's a good question you bring up because with rorschach it seems like he's actually figured out a way to turn that off in his own head it's like, what am I actually doing this for? He doesn't care. It's <laughs> no. just, well, it's, it's in some ways, it's funny. It's going. He's almost made himself a robot. Going back to, to Atlas Shrugged, he likes the process. Mm. And he, he, he appreciates the process without any desire for some kind of outcome. He doesn't yeah. think the world can be saved. No. It's, it's actually. Consequences don't matter it's for to him. him. Yeah. He's not doing it for others. He's doing <laughs> it for himself. Yeah. Because he, he has to be uncompromising. Well, and he's he's got that compulsion where he can't live any other way. And, and it doesn't really matter why. Right. <laughs> he no. just can't not do the things that he does based on his sense of right and wrong. Yeah. Like his, Which is why he can't understand the conse- consequentialist calculus that Ozymandias decides to make. Yeah. <laughs> at the end, right? And that's interesting. And I think that that goes down to a narrowing of the mind into utter yeah. and complete conviction. Yeah. Now, I actually love the fact that you referenced the kind of two sides who are, you know, this is always happens, especially in the internet world that we live in now, of the digging in trenches and saying our perspective is right and yours is kind of evil at some yeah. level, right? So the first problem with Rorschach that I mentioned is, is like he's not open to vistas. Like that's the kind of like first person tragedy of like if you imagine your own mental life as a kind of landscape, right? Or as a as a potential world to explore. But if you put on all of these filters that make you not see the other places you could go explore. And so you only actually, I believe it's like you only explore like 4% of the potential design space of your own mental life, right? Like that's tragedy to me in that there's that other 96 of what you could experience or could be, or could learn about that is just, you've cut yourself off from not someone else has cut it off from you, which would be immoral, right? Or criminal, but to do it to yourself is tragedy. So that's like the first person. Now the, and also, interestingly, though, the, the social or the third person sadness I see with Rorschach is that because he has hermetically sealed himself off from new ideas, he can't really solve problems in any innovative way. Right. <laughs> there's no innov- Only violence. <laughs> yes. There's only violence. There's only violence. So there's no innovation available to a mindset like that to go figure out how to do something in a new way, which is kind of the problem that you're referencing with the people who's like why do you want all the old people to die or why do you want to tank the economy like these are the wrong questions because the question now is like given this novel experience that we're all going through that hasn't happened for like a hundred years which is this coronavirus and 
a pandemic, we need a third solution. We, we, <laughs> like, we, yeah, need, we need to figure out how to deal with pandemics. We need to figure out how to evolve our economy into a way where we don't get to like 40% unemployment, yeah. but in a way that doesn't sacrifice old people. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like if this is where we hit the limit of our imagination, in a sense, we're all Rorschachs. Right. <laughs> right. That's in a, a really sense, we can't climb the next hill. And it's because of that first problem where mentally we haven't figured out how to do that because we've cut off the pathways. We've filtered our own brains. And I've talked about this a lot with you is that I'm interested in like the third path or the non-zero sum version of solving a problem. It's like, okay, why does one side have to win and one side have to lose? Where's our, now compromise is obviously a tainted word in this context, but where's our innovation, right? Yeah, I like I like that the uh, like the different ways of approaching a problem really come down to do you believe in in solutions beyond conventional mm-hmm. right like is can things be different and right. this is something that we've ta- that I've been thinking about a lot including with Watchmen it's like is the does the world have to be this way exactly or is it just that we've accepted that this is the way it is and one of the biggest problems I that with people is they get stuck in the mentality of well no that things are always going to be this way yeah and like there's nothing nothing more constant than change (laughs) yeah right (laughs) well and in the watchman universe and even in like the walking dead that i referenced at the beginning rorschach is right and he would be one of the most valuable allies to have in a world like that yes however if you ever manage to get to a civilized point where it's not pure survival, pure zero-sum game, you or me, USA or Russia, like you can only pick one. Yeah. If you ever get to a world that could potentially be beyond that, Rorschach will be no help to you. Yeah. <laughs> because he would actually be a hindrance. Oh, a big hindrance. Because he actually, because then, and this is not just a Rorschach thing. This is a really negative human psychological tendency is that, if you have a particular skill and you notice that skill is appreciated by the people around you, and let's say that skill is solving a really bad problem, that's great. <laughs> you want that around. However, there's an emergent incentive that builds up in that kind of person. Like, well, I actually need the context to remain of my skill set. An ugly way to put it was like cops need criminals. Yes. So that they yeah. can have a job, right? Uh, so maybe Rorschach, I, I don't know if he thinks this meta even, but Rorschach would need to be in a world on the brink of nuclear annihilation at all times to be at his most useful. Right. <laughs> so that for he would want to be in a world where there's nuclear annihilation at all times. Because he wants to be the most useful he can. So that's yeah. like a negative incentive structure that exists for people i think and i've seen it though like i've seen it at jobs where i have seen people who are so good at problem solving and just talking through problems they need problems but then the moment we solve problems they feel a kind of sense of superfluity to their own (laughs) presence well i mean i think often in politics that's such a huge thing because there's a whole sub uh sector of politics called issues management and it's (laughs) literally just and one of the things about politics is there's always a new issue (laughs) right which people like thrive off that and when you leave 
and you go to a normal job, let's say, or like, or I don't want to call it normal, but you know what I mean? Like a different kind of job, maybe a slower paced job. Yeah. These people can go a little bit nuts because they're <laughs> used to this high octane environment and now everything is just like plodding along, right? <laughs> it's like the scene at Jeremy Renner in the grocery store at the end of Hurt Locker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then he just needs to go back to <laughs> He has to go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, oh man, okay, we, this this yeah. has gone down a few garden paths, so I'll try to bring it back in a sense with Rorschach, is that I love him in this book, but I actually see someone like him being such a... His psychology, I see as being a major problem for growth. Yeah. For, for a situation, because he can't internally grow. Even now, Rorschach himself, the character, I think is a tragic figure because of all we know about his background. Like, yeah, if your mom treated you the way she did and you were just having to bite the ears off of people to survive at age 10, yeah, that would mess that would mess anybody up. You know, mm-hmm. like no. there is a lot of therapy needed for something like that. But the mentality, though it's inspiring in the book, I think is Something that would be, I mean, this is a funny analogy, but in our modern context, if there was a Rorschach, he would just go and kill the other side. Yeah. (laughs) Because he'd be like, well, fuck off. No, we can't be going out in public. (laughs) Or no, we can't be destroying the economy. Exactly. exactly. And and then he would also look askance on someone, uh, frankly, someone like me, who'd be interested and be like, okay, we need to figure out how to marriage both of these things, marry both of these things in a way that lets us grow mm-hmm. yeah he'd be like well <laughs> be there's like, no growth yeah it's just compromise yeah he would look at me and then be like uh you're you're just trying to muddy the waters here you know and we don't need that yeah so anyway that's all of my thoughts on rorschach i think he's he's so interesting well interestingly with rorschach probably everyone sees something slightly different <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I want to move on next to, I think we should talk about Dr. Manhattan, the next big, big, big guy. Yeah. I will say about him, we see his dick more than any other character. Uh, I know, it's just there, (laughs) big blue thing hanging around. One of the um, humorous side effects, I suppose, about Dr. Manhattan is that because he's become omniscient and all present in all of time... Uh, he has lost the necessity for the human niceties like clothing. He d- yeah, he doesn't. Or general tact. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really <laughs> In any sense. Care. So basically, his story is he was a... Uh, this is a... I love this motif in the book. He was a watchmaker. So watchmen is a bit of a, a double entendre in that these uh, they're guards. They're people who watch us and help us when we sleep, or theoretically, that is. But also, Dr... Manhattan slash John Osterman is a watchman. Like he made watches. And that is also his giant structure he makes on Mars is supposed to be reminiscent of a watch, I think. Um, Even though it's like glass. I think it's made of glass. Well, it's sand that he's made of glass, yeah. I think he was from Europe, maybe Poland. Anyway, he was born there and then moved to the States, I think, as as a boy. I can't remember exactly. And he is training to become a physicist. He gets locked up in this... I can't. I wish I remember what it was called. It's some electromagnetic testing machine. And he forgets his watch in there. He gets trapped. It's on automatic lockdown. He's totally disintegrated. And then he slowly starts to reappear <laughs> throughout time. 
until he's actually fully formed again. And it's, I guess, the science of it is that his molecules reassemble around a consciousness. Right. <laughs> Basically. Which seems, yeah. So, whatever. <laughs> it's a comic book. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and he comes back and he's blue. He's totally, his skin is blue. And he's basically a god. He can move things with his mind he, or his hand. It's like he, he's, like, he's like a Jedi. He can use the Force to move things around. He's present in all time, which is what makes him not have any friends <laughs> or lovers, it right. turns out. And yet he's still human enough to care about the people in his past. But... I don't even really know. It's hard to say what motivates him other than peace or kind of like learning, helping. Throughout the movie, he's working with Adrian on a project, which he only finds out is later so that he will be blamed for Adrian's destruction of the world. Right. That's a setup. So what's your thoughts on Dr. Manhattan and the role he plays? Well, I think the cool, I mean, it's really a reflection on deity. Right and and what would it mean to be a deity and what if you were a mortal who became a deity? Have you ever read Flowers for Algernon? No. Oh, it's a great uh, novel where the protagonist is a mentally disabled individual who takes a drug that fixes his mental disability, but then goes further and makes him a super genius. And mm. it it it's basically follows his journals through that. So he starts off right. not ba- barely being able to write and. And then becomes incredibly articulate, and then and then becomes despairing because he's he he's lo, he's lonelier as a genius than he was mentally disabled because he didn't mm. realize like realize how separated he was from humanity. <laughs> and I feel sure. like uh, Doctor Manhattan is a reflection of perhaps that novel. Not saying Alan Moore took that novel, but it's that concept, and that concept being. What happens when you you ascend so much higher than everyone around you that you can no longer even communicate your thoughts to them? Yeah. And uh, I feel like this is done so well mm-hmm. in Watchmen because we are given a taste, just a, a, a minor taste. And I think this might be just because Alan Moore is obviously a genius mm. uh, and, and quite intelligent. And, yeah. And that it seems... And apparently a little persnickety. <laughs> yeah, and similar somewhat to maybe David Foster Wallace in that the universe he sees is one largely of despair. Mm. I think maybe, I mean, what they say all art is autobiographical. Yeah, right. Maybe what we're seeing here is his reflection on on how lonely it can be. And, like, the weird thing about Dr. Manhattan is he seems to be above ethics. Mm. Right? Yeah. Like, he doesn't care. And it's this idea of, like, he's the opposite of what you would think of a loving God. Yeah. Right, he he's an indifferent god. Yeah, he's and not a vengeful god. No, he, he just, just doesn't care. He just doesn't care, and and that's really the problem that Laurie has with him too. Is that she just feels like she can't deal with his deity <laughs> yeah. and being a deity because she's she wants a lover who's you know she wants a finite <laughs> lover, right? Yeah. He can give her more attention and and do more for her than any finite lover ever could. Yeah, but that doesn't matter to her because there's an exclusivity that's desired in let's say love yeah that he's not capable of because he he's just so beyond that mm-hmm. so he can be working on projects <laughs> while uh having sex with her i believe is the scene yeah, yeah it's like, hilarious and, and she it? just gets really pissed off but yeah. he's like well 
Well, there's... He doesn't even understand that emotion hardly anymore. No. Well, I don't think he understands it at all. No. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, that's a hilarious scene where it's almost like she's having like a threesome with two Dr. Manhattans and actually neither of them are him. He's actually working on some like metal thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. The, in the workroom. And this is really pissing her off. And I know we, we, I can't remember a few episodes ago, we talked a little bit about Dr. Manhattan and how it's a revelation about how we actually want the people we're most close to and intimate flaws, with yeah, to we... be flawed and imperfect and personalized and almost essentialized in a sense. So why is, yeah, why is Lori frustrated by the fact that even though she's getting more physical pleasure from Dr. Manhattan than she ever could by any, like Dan even, right, yeah. who she has a has a little Tristic. bit of a tryst with yeah. <laughs> later on, and then Dr. Manhattan could give her everything that she might want. I think what's interesting and it betr- is betraying a bit is that Lori actually wants a partner who is vulnerable and then can be so idiosyncratic that they're themselves. Right, because there's nothing about Doctor Manhattan or John that she can latch on to as a kind of something to hang her own psychology on about the way he is that he's not like any other people. Now, obviously, he's not like anyone. Like he's literally he's not way like beyond. Yeah, he's everyone, way beyond. Yeah. But I think if you think about it more, like individual people have quirks that even if they're similar to other people's, there's something just kind of so specific to them that it's almost their own unique quirk. Yeah, what's right? the thing? Like, I think it's the combination of quirks. Yeah, right. And maybe just how their voice sounds, right. the way they say certain words, the way they turn a phrase, the way that they sing, the songs that they like, uh, the kind of the so impressively diverse patterns of our of an individual brain and the and the quirks and the imperfections that once you kind of have walked through that land, because what you can do then, I guess is that if Lori was with someone like Dan, which she is, eventually there'll be something about Dan that she learns that she could reference, that he could then see that she had learned about him. Which he would appreciate. And he would appreciate because he wasn't thinking about that thing about him that she was. Right. And it only worked because she had spent time with him and knew it. And that's something that could never happen with Dr. Manhattan. Because he knows everything because about he knows himself everything and is present in every at all moment. all times, right? So there is no... I mean, we've talked about it before, too. There's no rush of joy at the unexpected fun thing that someone else did for you. So this is how I kind of talk about humor or jokes, right? One of the things that's so great about humor is that it's involuntary. And it's involuntary because you are getting basically a rush of joy out of someone else having done something kind of clever or interesting or, you know, literally funny that you hadn't expected. And your appreciation of that is. Now, if I were someone like Dr. Manhattan and just knew every joke that was ever going to be made, how could I laugh at them? (laughs) Right? Because you don't get that rush. No, because part of the rush is the surprise. Yes. And none of that surprise is available. And I think that that's why, (laughs) I mean, we've talked about this a shit ton, so we don't really need to talk anymore about (laughs) God. But I always found it, even before I could articulate it like this, I found it curious as to why God was so wrapped up in people, you know? Now, once you learn about people, it makes a lot of sense. So these right. are the kind of gods. <laughs> <Yeah. they have laughs> made. But if you do take the paradigm 
this is why I like Dr. Manhattan. Is Yeah, okay, this is the paradigm of a deity who would look at us and not hate us, this is, but just well, not no, be interested. Here's the interesting thing. This is the watchmaker. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is the man who makes the watch and then it just ticks and he doesn't, like, that is, I mean, I mean, that's kind of one of the more obvious slaps in the face by Alan Moore. It's yeah. like, that's kind of the portrayal of <laughs> uh, God yes. that he's giving is the, is the you know, the watchmaker. Because is, um, there's a, I don't know what you call it. Like, it's a an kind idea. Of, well, it's, it's um, deism. Right. right, which there was yeah. a creator, mm. but he doesn't give a shit about us. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the laws of the universe are are there because there is a lawmaker, but then the lawmaker didn't say, "Well, now you got to like he didn't he just made them inherent and then walked away. Now, okay, do you think it's a narrative thing? Is it a psychological thing, or is it a is it something else where he is convinced to help them based on? finding out that Lori's dad is the comedian slash he also clearly still cares about his friends like Janie Slater, his former girlfriend and his friend Wally Weaver, who he's led to believe he gave cancer. So he's the reason they died. So we have at least three people that he seems to care about. So what do you think that's about in the book? Like where is that a narrative thing? Or like, what, what is being how said? Does, yeah. What's, what's being played into this otherwise <laughs> indifferent deity about these specific people he has had relationships with or is fascinated by? Well, I don't really think I could speak to why it's there in the book, but I guess if I was to say why I think it exists is whether true or not, the human soul, whatever we want, whatever that is, wants to believe that a deity could be convinced to care. And at some point, you can't just have all-out despair all the time. I think I think the message perhaps is there's hope, mm. and the hope lies in us, right? In in the in the yeah. imperfect humans. Okay, so this could just be a narrative hiccup, or a a bit of a paradox in the in the rules set up for Doctor Manhattan, but. It seems to me like because his turn to leave Mars to go back to Earth to help people is when he brings Lori to Mars. They sit or they're walking on the glass thing or it crash. I can't remember exactly the timeline, but it crashes. But she, they're both fine. They're on Mars. And he reads her thoughts. And it's revealed in the thoughts that actually the comedian is her dad. And because he's been so horrible but he managed to make something so brilliant and amazing as her, this kind of revelation is so impactful on Dr. Manhattan. I mean, in the movie, it's like turning air into gold, he says, right? So this is new information for him, <laughs> right? right like, but may, so how did he not, not know new, that? Maybe, see, I don't think he's omniscient. Okay. He's omnipresent. Right. Right, he, he can be present across time and he can live multiple moments at the same time. But I think there appears to be a limited amount of focus that he can give mm, yes right so and that's referenced to in that he can't destroy all of the incoming nukes just most of them right right <laughs> and what we're told here and i think this is this is a great lesson for anyone's life is the people that bring you back to remembering what matters to you mm. he's become so consumed by 
the forest that he's forgotten about the trees. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. trees don't even exist. To him, only a forest exists, right? To him, only the universe exists, and the and he sees such a broad picture. It's like if all we thought about was the fact that everyone's going to die and nothing matters, it would be difficult to then descend into like some petty problem that someone had driving <laughs> home from work the other day, right, or something like that. But but it's the people who bring us into caring about those things, right, that that make us human. Yeah. And really what we're seeing is the humanizing. I think this is a, a fundamentally humanist novel mm. because it's it's saying there's something worth it and valuable about the individual that transcends the corporate. And I know from my readings of Alan Moore that he isn't a big individualist, and, you, and we see this in The Dark Knight, which we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. So the the moral question that seems to be rising here is, Maybe there's not a inherent or or universal reason for giving a shit about an individual, but when we do, it gives us the license to actually do good. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And that was probably just an oversight on my part on how I I couldn't believe he wouldn't know that if he's in all time. But I guess he's only in all time of his own life, right? Yeah. Like he's not actually in every time of everyone's life. Yeah. No. Just but he, but he is like super in the in the sense that he can read people's minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's not reading all minds. Well, and there's a line earlier, I think it's in the movie, but probably in the book too, where it's like you're, he says to Laura, your mind goes to dark places and you wonder why I keep the worst from you. Now, that makes sense narratively, but it also is a good explanation of why he's not equal to her. Right, which is why she falls out of love with him, basically. Because right, they can't. How, yeah, how could? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's something necessary in the equality of imperfections and flaws to love someone else. You know, I mean, if someone doesn't have enough flaws, there is a kind of an envy. <laughs> right? Yeah, like that's but real. also a, a an inability or an inability to understand or ha- have empathy for it's mm-hmm. really hard to have empathy for someone who just seems so perfect that- mm-hmm. but i think probably then why laurie doesn't end up hating john or dr manhattan is that he isn't <laughs> i mean it's a it's because he's a superpower and a superhero so it's weird but he doesn't want to lord it over others Right? He's a different to So others. that's a, that's a that's a good real life analogy though is that I think like a maybe the first impulse of someone who just seems a lot better than you is envy or jealousy and then maybe that envy and jealousy or anger maybe is more justified if you can tell that that person gets a sort of sadistic joy out of being better than you. But if that if it comes to pass that you realize that that person is just enjoying their own place in the world and discovering as much as they can given their own vistas at any given time that seems like something worth emulating. And I wonder if there's something about John or Dr. Manhattan then worth emulating in terms of him just being interested in the world. <laughs> now, it's hard to say with him, but well, maybe I'm, that attitude. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like maybe that attitude is, oh, okay, you are... Because maybe that's the kind of person who can become a mentor. Right. right? But I think I'm not a, I'm not a big proponent of indifference. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm splicing off some different elements of yeah. his personality here, or at least like, because I mean, there is no one, literally, there's no one who could be like Doctor Manhattan in the real world. No. <laughs> he's the one character that it would be impossible to be. So I'm, 
playing a little bit fast and loose with his psychology. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. We talked a little bit about Lori. I guess I just kind of liked that she didn't want to stop helping, you know? She sees it in Dan. I think that's probably a huge part is that she she figures out how to bring something great out of Dan when he doesn't want to anymore, you know? Yeah, she's the one that kind of convinces him that there's still something worth fighting for out there. Mm-hmm. And then Dan himself, <laughs> this is funny, he, like, literally, uh, in a sexual sense, he was impotent until he got back into the swing of what he could do, which was save people and that he was good at. And so there's a not subtle metaphor here of you're at your most virile, I guess, or your most uh, fertile or your most energetic when you're doing the thing that you know you're good at and you can help other people with. Yes, 100%. (laughs) You know, and uh, I think about this a lot, actually, because sometimes I waver in my mind mentally, mentally. I'm like, oh, man, am I doing everything I could be doing that I like to do and that I'm good at to help others? Like, I don't know. Right. You know? So I do have, I personally feel some anxiety around like, I mean, this could be stupid, but it's how I feel is that, oh, you know, I haven't, um, I really think really true fiction is something I'm good at and I haven't worked on it in a while. I'm starting to feel a little bit anxious about that. Yeah. You know, or I just spent all this time watching a garbage show or doing something garbage when I could have been reading a a more intelligent book. Like there's always a more intelligent book to be reading. Right. But I think that I I know that feeling very well. But the problem is sometimes we we can't be moving at 100% all the time. I know. And sometimes you have to relax. And that's something I'm terrible at Mm. and really need to get better at. But you can become addicted to doing things. Yes. Yeah. And then, and and that addiction can just drive you into a frenzy. Mm -hmm. And then you're not going to actually be doing the best work you can do, right? There's a reason that they moved the workday to eight hours. And that's because they realized, well, if you give people rest, they actually become more productive. Yeah. And so I I think we have to be a little bit, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that we even err on the side of doing too much, although I guess sometimes, sometimes we do, but. Don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, so um, I don't want to mean in a sense of like, oh, I don't like to relax or I don't like to just kind of chill out and have fun, uh, ideally with friends, although that's impossible right now, (laughs) at least in real life (laughs) or in person. Yeah. It's kind of funny how just as an aside, this whole virus thing feels like, okay, now everyone has no choice but to live online. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It used to be a choice. And now Now it's mandated. Yeah. No, I guess I just kind of, I'm very struck by the line in the Tragically Hip song, uh, Head by a Sentry, uh, No Dress Rehearsal, This Is Our Lives, 
right? Because right. it it puts the heuristic into my mind of like, well, you have to start doing the things you want to do now, because or at least laying the groundwork just, because yeah, you're not going to get another chance. No, and I guess it's more like, and this could be a very common, you know, late night thought is like, okay, am I doing everything I could be? to be living a life that isn't a dress rehearsal. It's a little different, I guess. It's related, but it's a little different. It's like, how much of my day am I in this dream state that Dan seems to be in a lot of the time where he's not doing what he could be doing at his best? And then, you know, he's impotent because of that, literally. It's like, well, what, in metaphorically, how am I being impotent right now? Hmm. And that's a thought that I don't have an answer to, you know? It's just something I think to chew on for myself even. Cause I'm also a little bit lazy, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, I'm right. like, uh, I have this thing I want to write, but I fucking hate writing. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like the experience of writing. Right. I like the experience of having written something cool, but I don't like writing. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, it's like anything, right? Is Especially like, something. I write a paragraph. I'm like, oh, that deserves a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So anyway. I actually don't have a lot to talk about about Dan or Lori, even though they're really important in the story, because I actually think they're the most stereotypical characters in that they're the good guys. Right. 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 Like Dan and Lori are the heroic. They go and rescue Rorschach. They fight bad people. They want to help other people. They're kind of normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they both have flaws. They're a great match for each other because they're both kind of fucked up, but kind of nice. And they are thoughtful and they care about each other. Yeah. So they're great people to have in your life. And they're just not totally that interesting. I think of all the main characters, they seemed the least interesting to me in the story. I yeah, don't know I what agree. you thought. I, I don't even, re- yeah, I don't have many thoughts on them for that reason. Mm-hmm. I think the one thought I they're do plot have motivators is, is, too. is the one that I said at the beginning about Dan, where like living with past glories. And yeah. I, I see that. I said this to my friend Anthony yesterday. I said, I think the most tragic people in the world are the people who peak. Mm. Right? Yeah. Who who are constantly reflecting on some past glory. Well, it's like uh, it's like I heard Huckabee yeah. telling the same story <laughs> over yeah. and over yeah, again because yeah, yeah, it yeah, gives yeah. you value. And Dan does. Like, Dan is constantly remembering and reflecting on when he was a superhero mm-hmm. or when, sorry when he was a and vigilante. he's always going to talk about the history yeah right he goes and visits hollis mason a lot who is the original night owl uh, who wrote the book about them so that the public knows about them i guess the nice thing about their arc then is that that's not destiny for Dan. exactly he, he, like he, he is can actually able to change it he can stop reflecting on the past and live in the present mm-hmm and he does. Yeah. And it's one of the best parts of the story, actually, I think, is Dan's rejuvenation back into life. Agreed. Well, I, I, yeah, Too it's late. probably the most uplifting part of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Or yeah. one of. And, I mean, he's got the cool Archie, named after Archimedes. Yes. Which he references from Sword in the Stone, which is a movie I watched a lot as a kid. It was one of, like, the ten Disney movies we had. <laughs> right. I don't think <laughs> so, I've seen that one. You never saw Sword no. in the Stone? I think it's from the 60s, and it's a Disney movie about King Arthur as a, as a young boy. Yeah, no, I and didn't see it. how like well, spoilers for Sword of the Stone, but <laughs> the end of the movie he pulls the sword out of the stone sixty years later, which <laughs> is what makes him be the king, right? And so it's great because it's Merlin and him, and and uh, anyway, Merlin's owl 
who's also a kind of scientist the, oh. in, the, in the movie's name is Archimedes. I, I, which got, I, think is I got also, Disney Plus for the quarantine, so maybe I'll watch that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So that was all cool, too. And then just the last thought on Dan. I love this trope. Talked about it with Hopper. The guy who just can't let things go if they don't add up, even if it's not in his interest, too. And so he's actually the detective brain power behind figuring out that Ozymandias is actually behind everything. Yeah, like so that's how that they do it. He's the hero because yeah. he he won't let it. Yeah, what's what's going on? Well, working with Rorschach, Rorschach, basically Rorschach gives Dan all the data, but Rorschach can't put it together. But Dan can, right? Like he's and actually one. that's an interesting thing about Rorschach is that he understands his own limitations, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons he likes Dan. Yeah, and that they work as a good team together. That's actually really important: is knowing how to find, in some capacity, like work or relationship or romance, someone who complements your weak spots. Yes, you know? without without those weaknesses annoying. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like some people, when they see someone who's weak at the thing they're strong at, mm-hmm. it's just annoyed by it. And then how great it is when you find someone who can't or won't do what you can do, but will encourage, support, and try and like be with you while you go do it. Yes. Now, this seems weird <laughs> to say it's something so uplifting, but the, the scene where Rorschach and Dan are going into that bar to find out more about this pyramid organization. Yeah. And Dan doesn't really want to go rough these guys up. Not because he thinks they can, but it's just not his style. He's like, he's a bit of a sensitive superhero. Right. <laughs> but he realizes that the whole goal is necessary. And he realizes Rorschach has a skill set that allows him to do this. So he's like, all right, Rorschach, you go do it. I'll have your back. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't make Rorschach feel bad about this kind no. of thing. Now it's stupid in the story and that, of course, well, why would it be like not making someone you care about feel bad for being good at something that you can't do and then seeing the value in it. Yeah, <laughs> that's huge. Because you want to, the, the default setting is like to deride someone who cares about something you don't. Yeah. Who's good at something you don't. Like, well, why would you do that? Yeah. yeah, why do we care? So it's like a big sign of maturity, I think, to be able to move past that. So anyway, that's going to segue us nicely in that Dan finds out that it's Adrian slash Ozymandias who is the villain, quote unquote, of the story. And this is a great, I love this reveal because the first time I read it, I had no idea that it would be him. And I think it's a narrative, it's a narrative genius to have a twist like this where your villain is actually one of your heroes. Yeah. It's pretty simple, but the way it comes about you have the story to, yeah, it's, is it's great. It's more about the process of the reveal and the process of leading up to it yeah. that makes it a great twist. And how many great little breadcrumbs are along the way, like Adrian Veidt or Ozymandias is considered the world's smartest man. Like yeah. that's the meme about him. So, of course, he could pull this off. I mean, his plan itself is to destroy New York, basically, to save humanity. And he has to do this all the while keeping Dr. Manhattan, a.k.a. God, out of the loop. (laughs) So he manages to figure out a way to do that, which is complicated. I won't get into because I don't fully understand myself. But suffice it to say, it's it's not just a hand-waving plot. Like, he figures out some way that's intelligent to keep dr manhattan unknowing about his motives he's charming in the movie uh matthew good the actor who plays him is great he's very entertaining he's he is kind of the um he's very suave right he's very 
CEO esque, yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah. you could say, but not competent, with, but not without a heart. Really competent, yeah, very but, competent, but can engage you yeah. and and it, you probably get the Im- you get the impression right? that when he's in a room with you and talking to you, that he's ch- talking to you, mm-hmm. not waiting for the next conversation. Yeah. So, all of that makes him a great villain. Villain, I say in quotations because I don't actually know. How to judge the end of this book exactly. If we're going to take seriously, and I think for sake of argument we will, the constraints of the novel, which are that basically... Okay, so what happens is Ozymandias has figured out a teleportation portal from another dimension. He launches in this like 50-story high, at least in the TV show was that big, squid from another dimension that's radiating poison. So it's killing everybody on directly and then radiation so like millions of people in new york die from this now what this does is that it makes the entire world and all the world's governments believe that they're under attack from an alien invasion so it's basically like independence day but orchestrated by vite (laughs) right (laughs) right the doomsday clock is at a second to midnight richard funny richard nixon is still (laughs) the president (laughs) of this alternate history (laughs) usa both him and I guess it would be, well, I can't remember, the Russia, the Soviet leader. They're imminently about to fire all their nuclear warheads at each other and destroy the planet. And so Ozymandias makes the calculus where he says, okay, I'm going to kill millions to save billions. And in the confines of the story, that's what happens. And that's why when Dr. Manhattan shows up, to punish Ozymandias and then here's his logic he's like uh no you're right and I'm not going to hurt you and I'm not going to tell anyone and I want you and presumably he wants Ozymandias in the world to help solve the next problems too because he doesn't want to solve them he wants to leave well he wants to leave and then because well and then at first I was like okay Ozymandias maybe you're right but don't you think it would have been at least a little bit more noble if you had died (laughs) in all of it so (laughs) that you at least paid the price of your own decision then I was like, well, but no, but if he's the world's smartest man, they actually need him for more problems in the future. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's the table set. I think I can unequivocally say this is the most difficult moral conundrum in a story that I think I've come across because of its scale. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know how to think about it exactly. Maybe I do. Maybe I need to have a flush out a conversation with you. So what do you think about Ozymandias's decision to kill millions to save billions. Well, I think the issue that I have with it isn't the decision because, like you said in the story, the way it plays out, that makes total sense. Frankly, if you had to sacrifice millions to save billions, why wouldn't you do it? I guess if you want to put it into a less drastic thought experiment, like imagine you polled all 7 billion people. Like this is why I think it pulls at our intuitions a bit is that, okay, voluntary consent is a huge part of ethics, right? Like me, but if you pull, if you could legitimately pull all 7 billion people and say, look, there's something that's going to happen. That's going to kill everyone. Unless we do this thing. If we do this thing, probably about 15 million random people around the planet will die. Actually, this will definitely happen. But if we don't do it, everyone will die. Do we have your consent to do this thing? I I have to think most people be like, yes, (laughs) <laughs> yeah like throw myself in that lottery of the 15 million random people or even uh <laughs> even if you know there are probably people i mean look at the heroism of the people on the front lines of any major catastrophe but yeah. 
whether it be 9-11 with, you know, firefighters and policemen rushing into the building or now with our healthcare workers facing a pandemic and, you know, something like 50 doctors have died in Italy now, right? Mm, yeah. um, because, you know, it's, uh, there are people who will put themselves on the front line to save others. And there are a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, that's um, even more heroic than what I'm describing. Well, no, I know it's more <laughs> heroic. But what I'm saying is if you gave people the choice, they might not. Now, the problem is that humans are so, we think in a micro sense, right? We're not macro thinkers. 14, what is the difference between 14 and, and you know, million and 7 billion? Well, like, who's my family, right? <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. The thought experiment would force you to be as objective as possible. If I'm in this world. <laughs> and you're in New York. This is, this is like a weird, eerily weird thing to be talking about with a pandemic going on <laughs> i do mean this totally as a thought experiment that is useful to someone approaches me let's say a deity right okay <laughs> says, okay we have this thing that's gonna kill it's essentially well a vaccine let's say yeah god this is so close to home right now <laughs> let's say we have a vaccine that will be guaranteed to kill 15 million people however without it everyone will die like it's a guarantee right we don't know how to track who it will be it's a little different in Watchmen because it's just all the inhabitants of New York right right so it's geographic it's geographical but it's like we don't know who it'll be we have no reason to suspect we have no variables it's just that we know the final amount do we have your consent to go through with this experiment I have to say yes Right. Right. Well, and here, here's a here is a calculation of a historical calculation where it was done. Right. Hiroshima. Nagasaki. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right now, the, at least that is the calculation we're told was made. Right. They're like, well, if this isn't done, a lot more people are going to die. Yeah. Like the Japanese won't surrender. We need we need to make it impossible for them not to surrender. So we are going to sacrifice these two Japanese cities mm-hmm. in a sense, not only to save American troops, but to save the Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> now there are a lot of arguments about whether that was actually the calculus what would have actually happened right. they're like i mean listening you can listen to dan carlin's hardcore history on this and there's lots of really interesting counter arguments for that being the case but the mm-hmm. point is if we're just to look at it on face value and say okay this is what why the decision was made this way and how it was made this way mm-hmm. that decision is made frequently yeah. in fact here's a really weird part that decision is made all the time by governments yeah I mean, this is a overquoted and perhaps hyperbolic stat, but they say for every percent that unemployment goes up in America, 40,000 people die. Hmm. Right? Because from suicide, from from health problems. Crime, from, maybe. From, yeah, all kinds of different things. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's 40,000. Don't quote me on that. You all, there'd be, there'd be some research some, on that that you some look up. Some amount, mm-hmm. right? So the question is, okay, well, if... You know, should we allow this unemployment to take stress off of an overheating economy? Or, you know, there's all, these questions are constantly being made. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be utilitarian yeah. in those moments. So I guess my answer is, yeah, I agree with him. And I think I would always agree with him. So, though, I, I guess I'm trying to... Because, again, it's like, I can't. How do I sign off on killing 14 million people right right right. and it is entirely under the aegis of the idea that it's a it's a kind of if then logic scenario 
You have to if I don't kill believe, these people yeah. in New York, then seven billion will die. Now that works great in a logic class, I guess. The reason I kind of feel not totally on board with it is that life isn't a logic class or a philosophy class, and there's always the chance the nukes wouldn't have gone off. Yes, <laughs> right. And then Which you killed is fourteen one. million people yeah. for no reason. And now we don't know that because he did change the course of history because of that decision. So. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I, I don't know where to start exactly. I'm like, which part of this was Rorschach right about and they were all wrong about? It's, I mean, I feel like that's almost an impossible question because because you're right. Like, you, we, we can't make decisions, even the smartest man in the world can't make decisions with perfect data because we don't have perfect data. So we, really, it comes down to faith. As <laughs> yeah. crazy as that sounds. You have to, it's you, true. You have to believe in that, that you're avoiding, or, or even, um okay, so like, Let's take smoking, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that statistically, smoking is more likely to kill you younger. But there are lots of people who smoke all their lives and are fine. Are you going to take that risk just because, you know, the smoking can be enjoyable? Right. Or are you going to be like, well, I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with the argument from authority because I'm not a scientist when it comes to smoking. I have to believe their studies and, you know, and I have to, to take their, you know, mm-hmm. and there are many, many, many recommendations on face value and say, yes, I'm going to do that. And so that's a lot of how you live life. Yeah. Right. True. Is, 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 is based on assumptions that, you know, I don't know that smoking would kill me, but it probably could. Yeah. Right. And more than an average risk. Exactly. All things considered. And so like, if we're saying that the risk of nuclear war was nine, like it's really, it's not a black and white thing. It's, it's, it's a probability thing. Well, if the risk of, of nuclear war is it even even if you've avoided the risk of a 90 percent nuclear war but the, that 10 percent could have happened yeah but are you going to take that risk uh i guess presumably there would be a number of casualties where the math wouldn't work out right yeah like let's say ozymandias's plan involved killing three billion people in right order to set it off right it's in like well just... that maybe that is worth 10 percent at that point <laughs> yeah. right or it's right. like 99% of the planet. Well, of course, then I'm going to take a 10% risk. <laughs> right. But then you at no point then have any actual principle. It's just a numbers thing, which is a weird idea to swallow, I guess. Right. Because it's, of how resonant with our intuitions, I think, something like Immanuel Kant and deontology and rule-based. It's like, thou shalt not kill. Yeah, duh. Well, but what about this scenario, yeah. right? Or what There's about this scenario? scenarios, yeah. Hmm. But interestingly, as moral intuitions go, none of the cases that come up, okay, thou shall not kill, but what about a soldier in wartime, okay? Well, what about self-defense? You know, ABC, other examples. Interesting about that, though, at no point am I thinking to myself, yeah, maybe it is okay to just kill people whenever you want. Right. No, <laughs> right? you're never... Like, yeah. your, your fundamental intuition, I think, there isn't destroyed. It's just that, okay, well, now we actually have to figure out well-carved out ex- exceptions to our To rule our based. rule that we think is good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in a lot of to, ways, there's to that... make it so that maybe a specific person, the extenuating circumstances were such that they are able to be exempt from the rule. Well, it's like the that old saying, you know, the exception proves the rule. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't it doesn't discredit the rule. Yeah. It actually 
now then okay maybe this is an interesting thing question to ask is like okay so let's say he did the right thing or even whatever it doesn't matter should he go to jail right <laughs> right like do you think or should because should doctor of manhattan have let him off right now here's an interesting from the tv show i guess we'll spoil it from that is that the end of the show he saves them again right <laughs> from another agency and Lori, who's an fbi agent arrests him right for the murder of 11 million i think in the show it's 11 million you're under arrest for 11 million homicides right <laughs> so right. what do you think about that Oof. should he go to jail if he did the right thing ethically that saved people yeah yeah but he did kill he they are homicides right so i guess that's maybe more of a question of like law tethered to our moral foundations for the law or the law as it should be practiced well, here's a contextual okay. question if we know that locking down could save, let's say, 600,000 people in America. <laughs> right. But not locking down could preserve the economy. And we choose not to lock down and we see 600 million or 600,000 people die. Is the person who chose not to do the lock? Is inaction also a form of homicide? A question maybe for another episode. But... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'd... Because I think we've brought up before, we've talked about causes, mm-hmm. right? And our intuitions and our laws are kind of based around proximate causes or essential causes. So I don't know. I don't know. That is probably a topic for another podcast. But okay, so are we are we going to say Ozymandias did nothing wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like that. This is what I'm saying is that I. I've I don't think I've ever had my gut and my head pulled in such starkly opposite directions from a decision made by a character in a story before, right? As this one, because his logic is so sound, but there feels like such an injustice in the in just that these people who like the people who died in New York, if they were the Dukes were going to go off, they were going to die anyway, so they were going to die no matter what, so they didn't get a choice, yeah. Right? Now, the people who are going to die in the nukes wouldn't get a choice either. I guess really the question has to be then, was this the only way to prevent this? Well, that's the question. And, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier about black and white. <laughs> yeah. And is really th- are things that simple. In a weird way, Ozymandias is a kind of reflection of Rorschach. Yeah, right? he's the other much side. Mo- much more than he is a reflection of Dan or even John or Laurie, right? He's standing for his convictions, too, and his conviction is, you know, the <laughs> yeah. few must suffer for the good of the many. Well, and in a consequentialist sense, his conviction is much stronger than Rorschach's because he's much stronger than Rorschach. Yeah, yeah, true. So, I don't know, like, this this specific um, phenomenon in this book is something I would love to talk to other people about to get their intuition started because my intuition says, no, you don't do that, obviously, but my brain's like, well... If he saved the planet, I mean, you know, this is the trolley problem. <laughs> this is the trolley philosophy. problem. But it's like, instead of killing one to save five, you kill one to save, like, what would be the proportion? Like, one to save 500? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Or 1,000. Yeah. No, well, yeah, 500, you're right. Now, on that point, though, I actually, just as the storytelling, I liked the decision in the movie to make it seem like Dr. Manhattan did this to them and not some giant squid. They right. go back to the squid in the show and it's the squid in the book, but I kind of, le- I thought it made more sense actually to have it be Dr. Manhattan. Like I, 
Yeah. Because you're not introducing a whole other complicated story arc of like, okay, well, how did Ozymandias figure out this teleportation and how did to he another find dimension the to find a squid to do this? <laughs> I mean, that's part of the surrealism, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was tighter narratively to make it Dr. Manhattan's essence that killed everyone in the movie. Yeah. Right. I agree. Just a few things left then. Eddie, the comedian. <laughs> He kills a pregnant woman in Vietnam who's carrying his baby. So he's gotten a woman in Vietnam pregnant and he kills her because she scratches his face with a piece of glass. He understands Vietnam and he doesn't care. In the movie opening, it's actually him that kills Kennedy. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he has no problem assaulting Sally. He's brutal and nihilistic. What was your take on the comedian? Do you think he just played a plot role? But he also played a heartstrings role i guess well he's one of those is he redeemed is he like i don't think he's redeemed no he's one of those you know all things can work together for good even evil right yeah he's a good intuition pump on the difference between ethics and causes in life right so you know um i'm sure many listeners will be familiar with this kind of maxim it's like it's not an excuse it's a reason words like excuse are in the moral realm of like should and shouldn't do but reason is, here's why this happened. Yes. And I think the comedian, he's a good example of causes. He's obviously very bad. He sexually assaults Sally. He kills this pregnant woman. He is just a shithead. He, he just, he, I mean, there's one scene where he's just being brutal to protesters. Like he's, Jordan Peterson has this great line, minimum necessary force. Uh, comedian uh, embraces maximum unnecessary force <laughs> he enjoys <laughs> violence yes he 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 delights in it yeah which is part of the joke of his name so all of the ethics of him are terrible yet him as a causal figure in the space-time continuum produces quite a bit of good actually right right most ostensibly Lori's existence is owed to his existence and she's one of our heroes but also there's something about him as a contrast because we get especially you see this really well in the movie. There's a note, there's a scene with him and Dan, a scene with him and John, and a scene with him and Adrian. And seeing what the comedian is in the world actually makes them go on a better path. Right. Do you he, know what I mean? He's kind of a warning yes. sign, yeah. He's that thing, he's that great Galilean quote, I never met a man so ignorant I couldn't learn from him. Yeah. He's like a, a more of an ethical. It's like I never met a man so evil I couldn't learn something from him. Right. Kind of thing. Because Dan especially like sees like, Oh, this is where this could go if we let it. Yeah. Like we could turn into this brutal nihilist. So it's interesting how potentially someone like him his just causal existence makes other people better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is a weird way to think about it. But, but I think really that's not, getting full value out of everything. It's really not his evil that is making other people better. It's other people's betterness seeing his evil that's making things mm-hmm. better, right? And so it's not Laurie's being his... or It's not that he brought Laurie into the world that made Laurie good. It's Laurie's choices that made Laurie good, right? Yes, yes. And in the same way that Rorschach's mom isn't responsible for him being a, a vigilant, like, isn't for the good that he does in the world, right? Yeah. It's actually the individual's choices. Definitely. Choices are influenced by our experience. Yes. Right? But, but no, well, yes, they're influenced You see someone as bad as the comedian, you have a tangible thing that you've experienced to see how bad it could get. 
So you have like a benchmark now, basically. Right. So they say they serve a role as kind of a signpost, but <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say they they're yeah. they're you can get that signpost from a lot mm. of different places. Maybe I'm just thinking like if someone like the comedian has to exist, we might as well fucking learn from his experience. And maybe the maybe the statement <laughs> is better. they do exist, so yeah. we might as well learn from them. You yeah. use them for that anyway. Yeah. Well, it's all a joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Long, he's Rorschach's psychologist in the prison. And what I found interesting about his little arc there is that he, because he's so fascinated with Rorschach's case and story, he ignores his wife's desire for sex so that he can do work. And I just think this is a really dark place semi-rhetorically slash probably totally rhetorically jordan peterson in his signature style will say something like do you really want to ignore the erotic side of your life with your partner right as a signpost again or something to learn from is that we learn from dr long the danger of ignoring your relationships for chasing something for you don't really know why right (laughs) right because he's chasing this case he wants to make his name with the case with Rorschach, well, then what? Then your wife will love you more than she does now? Kind of thing. Like, he, he has a... He mis- it's, it's kind of the danger of obsession. Yeah. Right? He's a misappropriation of value, Yeah, it feels like. And I think it's a dangerous path to be walking on with a partner, to ignore their intimate come-ons. Right. You know, like, those are actually pretty sacred, Things yeah. that you want to treat well. they're supposed well. to be, you know, the only things that you have. Or, I mean, I guess within monogamy, that would be like, this mm-hmm. is the only person you've chosen to do this with. Yeah. So, it like, yeah, there is a sacred. Well, and it's like, well, because it's inherently vulnerable, right? Yeah. And, and I think that there is a kind of, not metaphysical, but linguistic sanctity to intimacy mm-hmm. that needs to be, I mean, obviously... <laughs> Dr. Long is not obligated to sleep with his wife every time he wants to. But if you're using the word obligated, you're already in a bad spot. Yeah. It's like you should have the kind of relationship where you can talk about that kind of stuff. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know? Exactly. And he doesn't. And it's very sad. And I think they die. Yeah. They're in New York. So they actually die in the, um, the, the death. I don't know. The final thing. (laughs) <laughs> this is funny. The newsstand. Everyone uninformed has an opinion. And I was like, this book totally anticipated the internet. On yes. One, right? Yes. I liked this. So not well articulated in our culture is the importance of Russia to winning of World War II. Right. And they reference that very heavily in this book at a few different points. And I think that's important. You know, like the history as it is so understood in the West is, you know, the U.S. and Canada and Britain and France and the Allies. We did well. Like, how many millions of Russians died? And and how much do we owe to the fact that Hitler had to send so many troops to the Eastern Front? Yeah, he probably wouldn't have lost to America if... Maybe. It but... would have been a lot more gruesome, yeah. I think. Now, that's not to say that the way Russia or the Soviets fought World War II was exactly <laughs> exemplary. No. I think there was a lot of wasted human life unnecessarily in the decision-making of a lot of World War II. But nevertheless, I think it's important, especially for Westerners, to understand the great contribution of Russia to World War II yes. and the Allies' success of it. So then there's also the newspaper, The New Frontiersman, which is not very hard on the KKK as they're defending the vigilantes. And it's like, ah, the tragedy of a good point lost in a bad source. Yeah, (laughs) happens a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, here's something I really liked. So it's only referenced a little bit in the book that the original Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis uh, were homosexuals and with each other. They make it very obvious in the TV show, going back, that they are. And then also Silhouette was murdered because she was a lesbian with her lover. So... I made the note of, I like how this book is kind of an early acceptor of homosexuality by showing the terrible people who are against it. Because the people who hate Silhouette or make jokes about it, like comedian, they're just awful. Yeah. Well, like, and they kill Silhouette or they're the comedian, right? And so I kind of, I don't know, like this was one social issue that I think this book was probably ahead of the curve on culturally, you know, which I think is kind of neat because even though like the theme of the whole book, it's really dark and awful what happens to Captain Metropolis and Silhouette. The tone of the book is like, look how awful the people are who hate these people for just for what loving they, yeah, for who love, they love. Yeah, who they love. He's ahead of a lot on a lot of social issues. I, mm, think. Mm. I loved um, the Pagliacci joke <laughs> that Rorschach tells. Do you remember that joke? No. Okay, so... I, it's easy to remember because it's a really cool part of the movie. So it's a, it's, um, I think it's Rorschach's journal, or maybe he tells it to Doctor Long. I can't remember. But he's like, I have a joke, you know, in his way of talking right, right. in the movie. It's like, there's this man who's very depressed, and he sees no light in life, and everything is dark. So he goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, I have no life. I have no happiness. What should I do? And the doctor says, Oh, very easy. Pagliacci the clown is in town right now. And he will make your life better because he's a clown and everything is wonderful when you're around him. And the man is just starts crying, pouring down tears. <laughs> right, and the doctor is. and the doctor says, Why are you crying? He's like, Doctor, I am I am Pagliacci. <laughs> <laughs> now there's something kind of profound in there that I'm not quite sure I can dig out, other than like the world is so bad that even the sources of our joy aren't joyful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now that is dark, right? And I also love the alternate history theme of this book. And it's actually carried in. That's one of my favorite parts of the TV show, actually, is the alternate history form that takes on because it's 30 years in the future. So in the TV show, Vietnam is the 51st U.S. state. Right. And so it's just part of America. And then the flag, instead of it's still stars and stripes, but the stars are all in the middle in a circle. Richard Nixon was the president for a long time now robert redford has been the president yeah. for a long time so the alternate history i don't know i really am fascinated by alternate history yeah that there's that um motifs yeah i agree or that there's that tv show uh where the nazis and the and the japanese take over america right and mm-hmm. what's that one called again is it a new one the man in the high tower oh yeah. right yes yes oh and then there's a brand new show on that i haven't seen yet that i'm excited to watch it's called the plot against america yeah yeah and it's charles Lindbergh beats fdr in the election in 1940 yeah. i think yeah and so and then this Jewish family is terrified <laughs> to be living in America if Charles Lindbergh is the president. Yeah. And then I don't really know what to make of it other than it's really interesting how there's this other kind of pseudo plot running along of this guy reading a comic book about this guy who's been marooned and he's a pirate, I guess, or he's on the seas. And there's probably something symbolic in there that I didn't pay much attention to. So yeah, I don't I know if you have any thoughts on that. I kind of ignored that okay. part. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's just as dark as everything else. Yes. There's a raft he makes that's made out of people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very sad. Uh, final thoughts on Watchmen. To me, Watchmen, by far the most interesting parts of Watchmen are Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan mm-hmm. for many different reasons that hopefully we got a little bit at today. I mean, I take 
the motifs of the particular psychologies seriously and at face value. I just, I wonder, I don't see the world as darkly as Alan Moore, I guess, does, or at least the style does. And I get it, like a noir genre is awesome. I guess I would, I, I would feel it tragic if we lived in a world that needed such harsh decisions to get anything done. There um, are probably places in the world where that is the case, mm-hmm. and and increasingly so, or potentially. Okay, here's what I mean. Then I am interested in the things that would prevent us from getting to that place, right? Or at least, or or maybe more accurately, or pull us, us out of yes, those places, right? And I like I, that, and, and I, I and I definitely that see actually, that from your analysis. That's the kind of enlightenment project. <laughs> Yes. That I feel kindred to. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. I love the story. I, f- I fucking love this book. I love the, I, I like the movie a lot. I, whatever it was that polarized people about it, I was on the side that loved it. The TV show is interesting. It's definitely got a little bit more of the modern kind of, every story is kind of influenced by its era. Yeah. So the original novel is obviously influenced by the nukes and the darkness and crime. The show is a lot more influenced by things like race and what's in the cultural conversation now yeah which is interesting i just didn't find it as compelling because i didn't think it quite digs at the deeper heartstrings like the book does but it's still a great show but i love watchmen as a story i just want to figure out how to make sure we don't get to that world (laughs) yeah or or yeah what do i think of this well, I think I already pretty much articulated my overall thoughts at the beginning about this being probably the greatest graphic novel mm, yes. that's ever been written. I agree with that for sure. How it changes genre. Definitely uh, read it. How Alan Moore is kind of a defining, um, like he's a, he's a giant in, in this field of storytelling and in this medium of storytelling. And I think Rorschach, but I think looking at Rorschach and looking at Mendez or or Adrian and and really contemplating what a seriously conviction-based life will lead you to <laughs> and whether that's even something you want to do seems like it'll lead you to very stark yeah choices going to make you to start life. it's going to lead you to stark choices cuz it's going to take you down paths that other people just won't even walk mm-hmm. and like decisions influence decisions i think that's the most important thing about watchmen is your decisions have consequences and you need to think about those consequences, which I think, interestingly enough, uh, Adrian does a lot more than Rorschach. Mm. Yeah, he definitely right? he, does. He's thought this through. Presumably, yeah. Like we're supposed to, we're definitely led to believe like he's exhausted every other option. Yeah, and he probably has given his character, but I just I wonder if there's one he missed. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I guess that's the question mark. And he and it's interesting like he okay so in the show in the TV show Watchmen he's one of the characters that returns and he's much he's still smart he's still competent he still knows how to problem solve but he's much more of a comic figure than in the book. Yeah. It'll be interesting for you to watch the show and tell me what you think about it one day. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, I'm going to watch it. It's yeah. really good. Well, I guess who watches the Watchmen I think all of you listeners should go watch the watch. Yeah, I love that. I love that. <laughs> there That's it is, good. Eh? So, um, That's a been, good answer. Yeah. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And uh, go in peace. <laughs> <laughs>